Comic Book Time Machine, episode 56. Marvel sci-fi licensed comic books cover dated January 1978, including Star Wars, John Carter, Godzilla, Human Fly, and Friends of Old Marvel. Hello, time travelers. It's Ben, Ben Avery, here once again to talk about just my little corner of geeky, geeky, geekiness when it comes to my appreciation and love of comic books. I am a comic book writer. I am a comic book reader. I am a comic book collection. I should note that my comic book collection is not worth anything, I might be able to find someone who would be willing to take a handful of my comics off of my hands for, you know, what, 37 cents, something like that, so that they can then drop them into a dollar bin. But really, my comic book collection comes down to it's stuff that I like. And the stuff that I like isn't the stuff that's really worth much. And part of the reason the stuff that I like isn't really worth much is because I like weird things. And part of the reason is because I like things that are cheapish. And so since I'm not buying anything that costs a lot, I'm not really you know, going to get a return on my investment when my investment is not much of an investment. For example, my John Carter collection is an omnibus and that omnibus, I was just talking with Daniel and Matt earlier today about the John Carter omnibus and how it was really cheap when I bought it. I believe that I purchased that omnibus for, I think it was $25. And, you know, the cover price on that thing is what I probably 75 to a hundred. I can't remember right now, but the, the, the point being, I got it on sale. I got it because it was cheap. I am so, so glad that I bought it because it is so far has been really, really good. I haven't uh, obviously reviewed the latest issue for this episode, but up until this point, it's been really, really good. Great, great return on my investment. Another example, Human Fly. I went ahead and got the Human Fly issues because they really weren't that expensive. I'm finding out why they aren't that expensive, uh, unfortunately. But again, return on my investment here. So far, I've had a fun time talking about them, so I can accept that. But I buy reader copies. I buy copies that are torn. I buy copies that are beaten. I buy copies that are really, you know, they're not collectibles. They're, they're books. They're meant to be read. And the copies that I buy have been read and are going to be read. Now, that's not to say I don't have comics that I haven't read, and some of them might even be polybagged. I just haven't gotten to them yet. <laughs> so, all that to say that I enjoy comic books and I am enjoying this experiment. And what is this experiment? Well, if you're just joining me for the first time, I am reading through the Marvel licensed comic books that Marvel published starting in 1977 with the release of Star Wars. Now, I did go a little bit. Uh, past that point when I was going traveling back in time 
to find, you know, 2001 and some of these other books that started before Star Wars. For example, John Carter, which started the month before Star Wars came out. The Star Wars comic book, that is, came out. And so here I am. I have... They, they published Star Wars from 1977 to 1986. There's some titles in there that I am excited about because I get to reread them, like Rom and Micronauts. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm excited to get to them. Uh, there's other titles that I've read some of them, and I'm really excited to get into those titles and actually finish reading them. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, for example, and uh, Godzilla is actually that's another one that I want to re that I'm rereading right now. Uh, actually, right now. And then there's some that are brand new, like The Human Fly. I know nothing about The Human Fly. All I know is it fits into what I'm doing because it's in this time period between 77 and 86, and it was licensed. It was licensed not from a movie, not from a book. It was licensed from a real guy, a real stuntman who went out and did stunts for charity. But that's what it is. And so that's the experiment. And so for this month... Cover dated January of 1978 is Star Wars number seven, John Carter, Warlord of Mars number eight, Godzilla number six, Human Fly number five, and then there's some material from a, a fan magazine that Marvel put out called Friends of Old Marvel, and that material is about John Carter. And Marvel published it this month, which if you want to set your time machines to actually get the comic books when they hit the stands, well, you're going to set your time machine for October of 1977. And again, I, I might have mentioned this before. I love when things happen in October. Now, I probably said it before because I read some books that had the cover date of October of 1977 and so when i would get a comic and had a cover date of october that would excite me because it was like it was for me because that's when my birthday is however uh now that i'm getting a little more into the the you know the inside baseball stuff here with comic books and how they were released back then uh finding out you know that they were released the co the cover date from what i understand is the date that it was supposed to be taken off the stands and so it was put on the stands in October 1977 and would have been there for a few months until January of 1978 when they would allow returns by stripping off the cover and sending the cover back. Uh, that That's me talking from my understanding of the situation, not me talking from uh, an intimate knowledge of the situation. Anyway, now that I know that January 1978 was actually October 1977, it's it's... I get two months of excitement about my birthday. And, you know, it's okay. Um, I'm an adult. I'm a grown man. I still like things, like things that happen when I have a birthday. And you have characters who share my name, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's dead in Star Wars. At least when I was a kid, he was dead almost the entire time that Star Wars existed. But still, I had that connection. So what we're going to do is, uh, as usual, we're going to start with Star Wars, because that's the impetus for doing this. And then we're going to end with John Carter, because that has been what's been great. Every month, I have not been disappointed by John Carter. There might have been some moments where I was scratching my head. There might have been some plot holes where I just kind of said, come on, John Carter, really? But for the most part, it has been a home run. 
So I start with Star Wars, I end with John Carter, and in this case, that leaves Human Fly and Godzilla in between. And Human Fly will probably be what I read next after Star Wars, because honestly, it can get kind of low. Now, I do have some feedback about Human Fly number 5, which I will get to when we talk in the the bullpen bulletin area of this podcast, but... Um, yeah, human fly, even when he's good, he's not really good. I'm going to save it for when I actually do talk about human fly. So for now, we're going to start talking about Star Wars issue number seven, which is finally taking us past the movie and into original stories. And into some of the first, if not actually the first, expanded universe of the Star Wars franchise. At last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, that is the header where it used to say on the cover, the greatest space fantasy film of all. Now it says... Like I just said, at last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, and all I can say is, at last, finally, my sentiments exactly. I have read through a lot of comics that I would not have read uh, to get to this point in time. Now, don't get me wrong, I am glad that I did. Uh, They were fun comics, and honestly, even when they were bad, uh, they weren't bad, 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 where I was just pounding my head against the ground, except for a little bit of Human Fly, uh, and I discovered the Kirby 2001, I discovered John Carter, Warlord of Mars, by Marv Wolfman, I mean, who knows what it's going to be like after he's gone from the series, because I know he didn't go the entire series, who knows what it'll be doesn't matter though because at this point I have discovered some really interesting and fun materials and I hope that you have too along with me if nothing else you 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 know how I feel about the just wacky Kirby 2001 stuff that was going on and the exciting and exhilarating John Carter Warlord of Mars stuff that was going on But here we are. This is why I started doing this experiment in the first place. It was to get to the new stuff. The Star Wars comics that I read to get to this point, one through six, I know that story. I know that story backward and forward. I know that story intimately in many different forms. I've read it in comics before um, the manga, Dark Horse manga. I actually read that before I read this here. Um, I have read it in book form and I have read it in storybook form. I have heard it and read it in, <laughs> and this is going to, uh, date me, but you know, if I, let's face it, if I went to see this movie in the theater, which I did, I'm, I'm old. Okay. I'm, I'm not a youngster anymore, but anyway, I experienced this movie, heard it and read it in a record and storybook set. The music from Star Wars that really stuck with me, part of that came from listening to that record over and over and over again. 
So that story that I just read through by Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin and all the other artists who got involved, that story, to be quite honest, I'm very familiar with. This is why I wanted to do this experiment, was to get to the expanded universe stuff that it's not canon anymore. Disney has gone and said, I don't even know if this stuff ever was canon as far as that goes. I mean, I know the books were, and there was this, you know, database that some chap was in, you know, in charge of. And I don't know why I just called him a chap. I was going to call him a fella. That's not much better. But uh, anyway, there was a database. There was, you know, all the books were basically canon except for some, you know, alternate stories and, and that kind of thing. And now all that stuff was just wiped clean, and they're starting out with just the movies and, I think, Clone Wars. And then, uh, when I say Clone Wars, I mean the animated series that was 3D, uh, computer-generated instead of the two-dimensional, um, incredible series that they did. But, yeah, I wanted to get to this stuff. I had a collection of Star Wars comics, but... I maybe had, I think, less than 10%, let's say. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that right now. Bottom line, we're here. And I'm so, so excited. So this story here, the cover says, like I said, the last Beyond the Movie, Beyond the Galaxy, but it also says, all new Han Solo and Chewbacca on a world the law forgot. So... Okay, we've got Han Solo, we've got Chewbacca, but we probably don't have the Empire. Uh, Han Solo is shooting a gun. That it's not his usual gun, but you know, based on what we're seeing here, we've got Chewbacca holding uh, alien by the collar. We've got Chewbacca holding another alien who's unconscious, and he's holding him by the front of his shirt, but you know, holding him up off the ground so he's not able to fall to the ground. There's a wall that's been blasted, it looks like, by an explosion. And there's a poster on the wall that says, Wanted, Dead or Alive, Han Solo and Chewbacca the Wookiee, Reward. And so it's quite possible he had to pick that gun up from some other poor old soul who's now lying dead in this town that Law forgot. And he yells to Chewie, Grab a laser gun, Chewie! They've got us surrounded! As a blast from someone with really poor aim hits the ground right in front of han solo and i gotta say this cover is exciting i really really i look at this cover and i think to myself i want to read that story what is going to happen inside this comic now i've been burned before because star wars covers up until this point have a habit of uh, about half and half uh not exactly portraying what's inside the book and that's not unusual. That's not unusual now. It's not unusual then. Comics are meant to excite you. You are going to, whether you whether you listen to your mother or not, you judge a book by its cover. Uh, that's just a part of life. Let's just face it, okay? Now, inside, we do get something similar or close to this because looking at this cover, there's a real Western vibe. You switch out that laser blaster with a six-shooter, Take that alien head and turn it into a regular person's head. Take Chewie and make him just some big burly dude. And you've got a Western. You know, you don't even need the hats. You recognize this as a Western. And and we're getting into a Western here. The, the story is a very, well, it's not just inspired. 
by, I was going to say, it's very inspired. It's not just inspired. This is a complete and utter ripoff of a story that, that I know well because I've seen, again, I've seen this story that I'm about to read here in many different forms, unfortunately. I don't know if that's to the detriment yet. I will save judgment until I get to the end of this, um, let's just say this story arc. Uh, but I've seen this story before and I've seen it before in different places. So let's just look at this issue though, right here. And then we got some, I've got some material from Roy Thomas that kind of explains what was going on at this time. But, uh, it's a simple story as of, you know, this issue and it's Han and Chewie leave to, pay Jabba the money, you know, that they got from the reward, but they are set on by space pirates. One of those space pirates is Crimson Jack, who takes their reward that they got at the end of the movie, and now, with no money to pay Jabba, they choose to lay low in a more outlying, out-of-the-way planet than Tatooine was. And when they get to, you know, the planet, they land near a town, and when they go in the town, they see a priest who's trying to take a body to Spacer's Hill. Now, the body belongs to a, a Borg. And a, a Borg is a half-droid, half-man person. <laughs> and, you know, we learned in the movie, people hate droids. And when the movie happened, we didn't know why people hated droids. We find out in the prequel trilogy that the reason they hate droids is because droids were used as an army and they fought a war against them. And eh, that works, that works. But, um... The people hate droids. This guy is half human, half droid. So Han and Chewie help defend the priest. And then they help him transport the body. And as they transport the body, they have to fight. Now, they're doing this for money. Let's, let's keep things straight here. I mean, these guys are still mercenaries. They're doing this for money. Uh, but when the Bantha that is dragging the Borg's body, which is a heavy body because it has mechanical parts in it, is killed. Chewie carries the coffin. And it's it's a great moment. And then afterwards, they retire to a cantina. Um, they're celebrating. Drinks on the house. Han meets a girl. Chewie meets two girls. And Han, he's with the girl. He turns around to check on Chewie. When he turns back, the woman is gone. And there are three men there who say that they have a proposition. And their exact words are... We have a proposition to put forth to you, honored off-worlder. It is a most agreeable proposal, we assure you. Unless, of course, you have an unfortunate aversion to... Dying. Next issue is Trouble in Paradise. Yeah. So let's let's start some analyzing here. Uh, first, at last, I already talked about the my excitement about the at last part. Beyond the movie, yes, we're going beyond the movie with the story. Beyond the galaxy? Not quite sure what that's meant to mean, but here we are, beyond the galaxy. And, you know, I do have some nitpicks. Um, to, one is that Han Solo says he needs to get back to Jabba on Dantooine. You know, I just got to say, uh, Jabba the Hutt's on Tatooine. Uh, Dantooine is where Princess Leia said the rebel base was. 
Uh, by the way, I got those two mixed up all the time when I was a little kid. And my older cousin, who was probably my biggest Star Wars fan friend, my biggest Star Wars fan enabler, um, he would correct me about that. He also would correct me that it's not lifesaver, it's lightsaber. You know, what's he going to do? Throw a piece of candy at Darth Vader with his light if he's going to get out his lifesaver? Yeah, that's... My, my cousin actually was a really, really nice guy, but um, we, we did, you know, have fun and joke around. And um, me being the younger one, I was usually at the disadvantage. Anyway, <clears throat> there's a lot of exposition going on. <laughs> there's a lot of just describing what you see on the page. Um, for example, when, when uh, Crimson Jack comes... It, it it just it describes him. It says striding through all the din and clamor, a red bearded man in black. Well, we can see him. He's right there, front and center in the panel. He's a red bearded man in black. Now his people, it's an interesting crew. Um, he has there's a stormtrooper there. There's people, in, there's a pirate looking guy who actually has like the pirate do rag kind of thing going on. There's a guy with a patch over his eye. Um, it's an interesting crew that he has, and I'm, I'm curious. I want to learn more about this crew. However, uh, we don't get much more about them in this issue. I do think we will get more about them because of what this story is based on. This story is based on the Western, The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven is based on the samurai movie, Seven Samurai. And you may have also heard uh, or seen, rather, various other versions of this um, most notable would probably be a bug's life and the basic idea behind all of those is that you have someone who is living in a town that's being oppressed oh how could I have forgotten the sci-fi version of this from Battle Beyond the Stars uh, which is ripping off Magnificent Seven while also simultaneously trying to rip off Star Wars and so, actually, it is quite possible that the people making Battle Beyond the Stars, I want to say it was Roger Corman, but I might be wrong about that. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. The people who made that movie, it's possible that they said, hmm, George Lucas based Star Wars on the Japanese movie Hidden Fortress. There's a whole lot of Hidden Fortress in Star Wars. And is it possible for us to do the same thing with another Japanese movie like Seven Samurai, which was so good they remade it as a Western. And you have Battle Beyond the Stars. So you have... It's a classic type of story, though, where you have this village of people who are weak and who are not warriors, who are not fighters. And so they send one of their own off to go and hire some fighters to protect them from the gang of criminals who is taking their livelihood. And in the case of Magnificent Seven, it's their crops. And in the case of Battle Beyond the Stars, it's their crops. <laughs> uh, and in the case of, you know, A Bug's Life, it's really their crops, isn't it? But, uh, oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> I have a feeling that this gang that we're seeing here, these pirates, Crimson Jack and his people, I have a feeling that they are going to be the the bad guys in this scenario that they are going to be coming back because they're the ones who are threatening a small village now i'm spoiling a little bit ahead because 
we don't get to see the village in this. Uh, we get to see a town, but I there's no reason for me to think that they are in the town that's being oppressed by criminals because there are so many people with guns and who are willing to fight and not just fight, but try and kill the priest who's going to bury the Borg on, on Spacer's Hill. Now, I knew that this particular story arc was going to be based on the Magnificent Seven. I knew this because of articles that I had read before reading this. I knew this then because also I had a friend, Steve McDonald from Strangers and Aliens, who this stuck out in his mind because of the the blatant um, inspiration from Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai. And uh, he considers this, I think we talked about this in, in great ripoffs. Anyway... <clears throat> I knew that that's where we were going with this story. However, as I was reading it, I thought, oh, they're ripping off another movie very, very closely because I remembered another Western. And for some reason in my mind, it was Clint Eastwood who was in this Western as the guy who comes and helps uh, an undertaker or someone to, to bury someone in, in Boot Hill because they they needed to do that and they were they weren't going to let them the people of the town weren't going to let him bury that the person there and i'm thinking to myself oh my goodness they ripped off two westerns well then i realized actually the western i'm thinking is magnificent seven and it's that's the the scene where you get to see uh yule brenner and i uh, i think steve mcqueen um come together they ride a wagon up the hill, and they are shooting it off. You know, and they're they're so good. You know, and this is where we first see how good they are, and their first, you know, the first time we see them together, and and see their relationship. So, this, I am really curious if this is just going to be ripping off that movie beat by beat. Now, the three people uh, who come and visit Han Solo there, they, they're unassuming. They look like they're peaceful dudes. Uh, they kind of have bowl cuts for haircuts, and they're wearing robes, and you know they're using very big words, the preposition to put forth to you. It's a most agreeable proposal, unless you have a aversion to dying. Again, you know, I'm wondering just how deep does this ripoff go? And I I have to throw this out too, though. As much as I'm kind of laughing because I can't believe how much this ripoff is happening here, uh, how much they're just stealing, that Roy Thomas is just stealing from an existing story. I look here, and there's just something primal about this there's just something really i don't know the, the fighting what they're fighting for the fact that a priest is having to fight just to give a man a decent burial and he's fighting against odds that are completely out of his favor and because he's he's honorable and he wants to give this person the the respect that is due to a life form. Uh, 
And then you have Han Solo and Chewbacca come into the rescue. And they come and they fight. Now they're fighting for money. But again, there's just something primal of about them putting their lives on the line for a dead man. And for a bag of money. <laughs> uh, another, another nitpick, though, is that you know they have the whole money problem. They're hiding out because they don't have any money. They're doing the job because they don't have any money. And they go into the cantina and drinks are on the house. I mean, that's not something that someone who has money problems, especially money problems that put them in the sights of a dangerous walrus humanoid gangster as we saw in, I think, is issue two of, of the Star Wars adaptation. But, um, yeah, I I just, that that's kind of silly. Another thing is kind of silly that just, this comes down to just not being thoughtful and, and writing the dialogue maybe, but um, they walk in and they see and recognize just by looking at the building that there's a cantina in the center of town. And then after they help get the priest to the burial site, they have to ask directions back to the cantina. And they just walked away from the spot where they could see the cantina, and now they're asking for directions. I, again, that's a nitpick. Um, one thing that's not a nitpick, but that's kind of... This does stick with me, and that is that the cliffhanger here is kind of dumb. Uh, now, the fact that it is a, it, this is an arbitrary cliffhanger, we get the story to this point, we want to have something that's going to hook the reader to come back, but... Uh, it just I'm not impressed by this cliffhanger. I'm going to read the next issue no matter what. But this cliffhanger, if I was on the fence about Star Wars, if I was a reader back in 1977, say I was a more sophisticated reader than I would have been in 1977, I was like a, well, basically a three-year-old, um, I would have gotten to that point and not been impressed and probably wouldn't have come back to the comic book. I would have definitely come back to the movie. Uh, for, you know, whenever the sequel came out. But I, I wouldn't come back to the comic book unless another co a cover really, really grabbed my attention. So, <clears throat> beyond that, there's, there's also something really cool that's kind of weird. And that's when Han Solo is leaving. He leaves the Rebel base. They're going to go find a new base. But he's, he's leaving, and there's this really cool three-panel sequence where they are... Um, the dialogue says, uh, so set set the coordinates for Tatooine. Next stop, Mos Eisley Spaceport. Though, we've got a few more light years to go before we even cut to hyperspace. And they have this three panels. The dialogue caption box cuts through all three panels, and it's green. And it actually turns out that as you're reading those three panels, the caption box with the dialogue in it is the trail that the Millennium Falcon is leaving. Each of the three panels are three very different places. One has this weird planet landscape with dinosaurs on it, or dinosaur-looking creatures. They're kind of roundish. Um, and then the next one has this domed station that you can see plants and part of a like a city almost. And then there's this uh, space wreck that they pass. And I just read those three panels. Not a thing is explained from those three panels, but it looks so interesting. Each of those three panels could be a place where the Millennium Falcon would stop and have some form of adventure. Stop with the uh, the dinosaurs, obviously. There's 
there's the there's your adventure right there. They're on a dinosaur planet. There's going to be trouble. The domed world or the domed station they could land at, and you know, just have to figure out okay, why is there nobody here? But everything looks like it's been tended to with all the plants and stuff. I don't know. And then maybe the mystery of why the space wreck is there. No, we don't know a thing about these three things. It's just thrown out there. Three great ideas for a sci-fi story that could involve our heroes. And they're just throwaway panels. It's really funny. Finally, the last nitpick that I want to give. And again, this is something that happens off and on throughout Star Wars anyway, uh, even in the movies. They'll throw out something that's basically a human phrase from Earth. There's no reason that they would know this. <laughs> that's where they're talking about the priest as they're coming up, and they say, hey, isn't the buggy dressed like some kind of priest? This is Han Solo, obviously, not Chewbacca. Can't identify the exact religion. I guess I shouldn't have skipped so much Sunday school as a kid. The Sunday school, they they have Sunday school in the Star Wars galaxy a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I, I'll be honest. I mean, that again, I'm nitpicking, and I'm kind of nitpicking with a, a wink and a smile. Not about the cliffhanger, but the cliffhanger doesn't matter to me. I'm reading the story anyway. Uh, but they're, they're, they're nitpicks, they're, and they're, they're charming. They're charming because what we're looking at here is the first foray into new stories with these characters. And George Lucas approved this story. He approved it. Um, he disapproved of it later on, but he did approve it when it was first pitched to him that he wanted to do, they wanted to do a Star Wars story that was Magnificent Seven. So I'm going to actually read some uh, quotes from Roy Thomas as he's talking about what was happening during the time of the story because this is where he lost interest. And this is where Roy Thomas really decided that he wasn't, his heart wasn't in Star Wars. Now, again, I'm referencing the article that Roy Thomas wrote for uh, his, his Alter Ego magazine, and it was called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Star Wars with reservations. And now we're going to get into some of those <laughs> reservations here. Um, <clears throat> he uh, he says in, in the article uh, that he... Star Wars open, it was not just a movie, it was a phenomenon. And the way he puts it, he says, quote, and perhaps inevitably that's when things began to go sour for me personally on the Star Wars front. And he, he had to write a new storyline for this. And... As he was figuring this out, he came to understand that they didn't have the details for the sequels yet. And he, all he knew was that he was told he couldn't use Darth Vader and he couldn't advance the Luke slash Leia romance. So I don't know if that's because they already knew about who Luke and Leia were in relation to each other or if it was because they wanted to wait until the next movie, which is probably what it was. Um, I'm pretty sure that the whole Darth Vader thing comes down to, you know, you, we don't want Luke to meet Darth Vader for the first time on in a comic book. He needs to meet Darth Vader for the first time in the movie because that's the important part to have them battle. Uh, he says, I know for a fact that I was being told the truth when it was said that the events of the sequel were still up in the air. 
And then he tells a story is kind of funny about uh, a lunch that he had with George Lucas and Mark Hamill was there. And at one point, George began to discuss the fact that they weren't, uh, quote, yet positive how big a part Han Solo would play in the sequel. It was clear to me that there was a chance he might be left almost entirely out of it. At that point, Charlie stopped the conversation short and looked squarely across at Mark. Now, don't you say a word about any of this to Harrison. Mark, clearly ill at ease with the awkward situation, promised not to. No one bothered to swear me to secrecy, but I never ran into Harrison Ford again to spill the beans. (laughs) And then from there, um, he goes on to talk about how he worked with with George Lucas. He had a conference with him in, in the office. And he said, I mentioned my desire to do a Magnificent Seven-type storyline as a follow-up to the six original issues. He was very complimentary, saying, You're the only person who spells Wookiee correctly. Everyone else leaves off the final E. And they mostly did back then. And then he talks about uh, uh, George Lucas explaining the philosophy of the Force to, to Roy Thomas and how he just didn't care about it. He didn't take those any kind of thing like that seriously and i'm actually almost almost considering buying these but george uh gave him books uh from new age writer carlos castaneda and the books are tales of power and the second ring of power which were a big influence on the force i'm very curious to read those and see i have a lot of reading i have to do before i can kind of dive into anything like that but I, you know, I have a little bit of curiosity. I, I won't. I, I, I'll just say it right now. I won't, but I'm almost curious enough to do so. So then he goes on then to say, I'd chosen the Magnificent Seven route for Star Wars number 7 through 10 because it made a good starring vehicle for Han and Chewbacca my favorite characters in the movie. If I couldn't do anything meaningful with Luke and Leia, I figured I'd leave them out of the tale almost entirely and focus on these two space opera gunslingers. In the back of my mind, my, always were the Northwest Smith stories by C.L. Moore, rights to which I'd tried unsuccessfully to license for Marvel not long after Conan the Barbarian became a hit. Now, there is more to the article but we're going to kind of save that when we get to the actual issues that he's talking about. But it's really interesting to hear his thoughts and to see just, you know what? He really was just going plowing straight ahead and saying, you know what? It's the Magnificent Seven with Han and Chewie being, I guess, two of the seven. Now, the only two we met so far. But that's the way the Magnificent Seven works. There's only two at the beginning and then they all come together. But I have to say, Roy has the Roy Thomas has the right instinct here. Uh, let's take two of the more interesting characters and run with them, throw them into another situation. Uh, this is, you know, just the next adventure for Han and Chewie, just like Star Wars the movie was an adventure for them. And this is it's it's a good instinct to take them and and put them into the situation. There's some goofiness that goes on getting them there, especially with you know losing Jabba's money and then having to get more money, and so they go to an out of the way planet where it, it, there's some goofiness to get them to the point. But that doesn't matter. 
And when I say goofiness, I don't mean that it's ha-ha, silly-silly, I'm rolling my eyes as I read it. I, I mean it's just plot convenience. It's, it's convenient storytelling to get them to these places. And honestly, maybe it's quite possible that as I read the, the next three issues after this that wrap up this story arc, it's quite possible that my nitpicks will be gone and I'll have no reason for them. This is just the opening. This is the prologue getting us to the story that Roy Thomas wants to tell. He has to get us there somehow. So for now, I'm closing the book on Star Wars. I'm excited to read the next one. I'm excited because I'm excited. I'm not excited because of the promise of the next story. I'm just excited that there is a next story. So I'm going to stop here talking about Star Wars, and we're going to move on to part two, where we are going to go to an inferno of some sort. A towering inferno? I don't know. There's an inferno involved. Human Fly number 5, 35 cents, uh, has a cover date, like we have already said, January of 1978, but it was released on October 4th, 1977. And uh, the cover of Human Fly will tell you that it's the wildest superhero ever because he's real. And he is based on a real guy who actually was a stuntman, as I, as I mentioned before, and, and they licensed his story, and they're telling these fantastical stories, but that are more realistic than your standard Marvel fare, even though the human fly actually takes place within the Marvel Universe, because we've seen him work with Spider-Man, and uh, they mention superheroes and that kind of thing. He hasn't done too much with supervillains or, or with uh, super other superheroes, but it's, it's entrenched in that marvel universe this uh this uh, particular issue is called fire in the night and bill mantlow is the writer frank robbins is the artist rob santiago is the inker jane cohen is the colorist joe rosen is the letterer and archie goodwin again is the editor and we the cover shows us uh craven the hunter's uh greasy greaser cousin is standing on top of a burning building and aiming a gun down at the human fly who is scaling the side of the building using what looks to be either bars of soap or chalkboard erasers to um, hold him to the side of the building. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that's meant. Well, no, I know what it's meant to be. It just certainly does not look like what it's meant to be. There's cars and stuff down below. You've got the flames coming up. It's a dramatic cover. Uh, the guy who's pointing the gun has a crazed look on his face. And like I said, he kind of has a, a greaser haircut. And honestly, he looks like he could be the villain from some sort of uh, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry movie. Uh, who's you know, desperate and he's you know, holding the gun on the hero even though he knows he can't possibly win. So, I've got a pretty low bar for Human Fly stories right now. All this has to do is live up to the cover. Just give me the drama on the cover within the book. Give me a good reason for them to be on the building. And basically, this book has one job. Don't be stupid. That's what I'm asking. And... Uh, 
Well, here's the story. Scene one sees human fly on a helicopter investigating a towering inferno. He can't get close. The helicopter can't get close enough to get to the roof because of the updraft from the heat of the flames and the smoke. But there are kids who were on top of the building. They are still on top of the building and they are safe for now. But fire is coming up. Emergency fire doors have dropped. The emergency teams cannot get to the children on top. The helicopter cannot get to the children on top. Basically, the kids will die unless someone can get to them and get to them soon. And that's someone, human fly. Okay, so far, so good. This is standard stuff, but not stupid stuff. And reading this, I can't help but be reminded of, you know, disaster movies from the 70s, like, say, oh, I don't know, Towering Inferno. Uh, It really, I think... It draws a lot of influence and a lot of inspiration from those types of movies. Uh, But we're going to get some other influences from the 70s. Towering Inferno came out in 1974, so this is only, you know, three or four years later. But, of course, we are starting in the middle of things, so we need to find out how we got to this point. That brings us to scene two with a flashback. Reporter Harmony White is covering the uh, stunt event that the human fly is doing, and she has promised she will shelve her suspicions because of the kids who are there on the roof of the building with Ms. White and with human fly and her camera team. They are watching as he is going to walk a tightrope between the world's two new tallest buildings, which are slightly taller than the World Trade Center, as we are told here in the text. I I have looked it up. I tried to do a J. David Weider, Dave's Daredevil podcast, um, kind of research into where this would be. I I really couldn't come up with uh, two towers that would have been next to each other in Quebec uh, that are, would have been in 1977, tallest buildings in the world. I tried. I didn't know where to look, though. I I don't know at all what these towers are supposed to be, other than they really do look like the World Trade Center did. So um, as he's doing this, he's doing it for a group of Canadian disabled school children. And he's up there, and he's getting ready to walk the tightrope. And, of course, the question is, how did we get from here, where they're all up there and it's all happy and it's daytime and there's no fire and no guy with a gun... (laughs) as we see on the cover. Uh, how do we get from there to where they are investigating and trying to get to the children through the smoke and heat and flames? Well, here's why. There is a man dressed as a security guard with a gun who says he, quote, won't be robbed of his glory. He shoots the cable in front of the audience and in front of the cameras, and human flies' gymnastic skills are the only thing that save him as the rope falls as he grabs onto it and he is able to find himself uh, some good footing but he is no longer up there with the kids no longer up there with Harmony White and no longer up there with this crazy man with a gun and this crazy man with a gun what does he do he points the gun at the kids now the kids have come there to be inspired he is there to tell the kids you can do anything you can you can overcome and that's what he's trying to show them by doing this stunt and, and you know we can get into you know the the merits of doing life threatening stunts 
to inspire people to better their their lives or whatever but the the motivation is good i mean he's a motivational speaker basically he's the guy who comes in to your gym at school with uh you know a bmx bike team or with um basketball stunt team uh, you know, or they're, you know, doing feats of strength, like tearing uh, phone books and carrying refrigerators and that kind of thing. You know, they're, they're showing you, you know what, we trained hard, we did this, and we want to inspire you to train hard, you know, to work hard at what you want to do, at what you want to accomplish. Uh, so this actually feels like it's drawn straight from reality. I don't know if he would do this, this kind of a stunt in front of children like this, because if something would go wrong, well, something does go wrong. I mean, they they get double trauma. Uh, they get to see an attempted murder of this man who is kind of a heroic figure to them, and then they get a gun turned on them. This is not good. Uh, a cameraman attacks the man, and he knocks the guy out. I mean, right in front of the children. This is something that's this is not good. Uh, then we find out that he's actually soaked five the five top floors of the building with gas. And he has turned off the sprinklers. And then, okay, up until this point, I've been forgiving. This is way over the top. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what could possibly motivate someone to put children in danger like this. Then he rips off the security guard uniform. It tears away and reveals a man in jungle man tights. stupid darn it <laughs> it took the turn <laughs> oh now we're meant to be reminded of um philip or philippe petit who um walked between the two towers of the world trade center in 1974 again we're drawing inspiration from other places but uh, by the way there's a documentary called man on wire about that and there is a imax movie directed by robert zemeckis called the walk starring Joseph Gordon-Lovett that is also about that. It's a fascinating story. Fascinating story. And uh, I'm actually, I am so afraid of heights, but I really want to see the the walk in IMAX just to experience the height. Uh, similar to Gravity. Gravity, the only reason I would watch that movie again is if I could see it on the big screen in 3D again. It's an experience, far more than a story. Uh, with the walk, though, I'm, I'm assuming it'll be more of a story than just the experience, but I want to experience that in IMAX 3D. I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, but this is the closest you can get to walking on the tightrope without having the danger of someone shooting the cable out from under you. So in scene three, we have Human Fly. He has a mad plan that no one thinks will ever work, but they're willing to let him try just out of desperation. Meanwhile, the jungle man is still holding them hostage. It's now nighttime. He plans to die with them. He's going to go down in a blaze because his glory has been stolen from him. And Human Fly happens to see a feed from the camera that's still up on the building, and, and he knows who this man is. His plan is to use suction cups to climb up the side of the building. He's going to go up as far as he can where the fire doors are dropped down and you can't get through. And so he goes up to, you know, halfway up or whatever. Then he's going to climb the rest with these suction cups. And he ends up uh, climbing up and using uh, a cable and things to get around. But um, that's his plan, and he's going to do it. And, and we know he's going to succeed. No one believes in him except for the writer of this story, Bill Mantlow. Bill Mantlow absolutely believes in him. 
But um, he's he's going to make it. We know that. The question is, what's going to make it interesting to get us there? And what's going to make it interesting? A backstory. A backstory that's going to give us a reason why Jungle Man uh, is legitimately holding children hostage at gunpoint and planning to kill them by fire. I mean, this is... Oh my goodness. This is over the top. This is worse, far worse than any imaginary thing Dr. Doom could do. This is absolutely ridiculous. A regular guy doing this kind of thing. This man has gone insane. There is really no other... There's no other reason for this. Anyway, we get his backstory. And that he used to be the greatest aerialist ever. He used to be the greatest tightrope walker of all time. And he was going to walk a tightrope from the Empire State Building to the Chrysler Building. But the cable snapped. Now, he didn't grab on and use his gymnastic skill like the human fly did. Instead, the cable happened to wrap around his leg. He swang down and slammed into the building. And it broke every bone in his body. He's never going to walk a tightrope again. But you know what? He tried. And he would still be famous. But as he's lying in the hospital, he's given a newspaper. And we can see the headline. His glory has been stolen. By Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Oh, this, this story just keeps piling it on. I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, scene four has Human Fly making his way up past the heat, the fire, the danger. He gets there and he distracts jungle tightrope man and a little boy with a crutch hits the gun out of the guy's hand and then as the boy does that human fly throws his pimp cane at the jungle man i can't believe i even just said that sentence jungle tights man is out harmony and the children are able to go across on a chain-link ladder bridge that is connected to a helicopter that's off to the side where the updraft is not going to get it. She takes the kids who are able to walk, uh, leads them across. Human Fly has to choose, do I take the unconscious guard or do I take this little girl who's in a wheelchair? And he is told then that he doesn't have to choose because Jungle Tight's tightrope man has woken up and he's going to help. So they go across. And Jungle Tight's tightrope man, as he goes across, um, he's the last one. He's holding the girl. And the chain ladder bridge thing breaks from the heat. And now we have a similar fall. We have three of almost the exact same falls in this. One with uh, gymnastic daring do. One with an absolutely bone-shattering result uh this fall he's able to protect the girl they smash through a window not far below uh in in the the next building over and he's able to protect the girl and then we get our melodramatic ending where oh this is this man is beyond beyond redemption but he lands and can you forgive a mad old man child? And the the little girl says, I forgive you, monsieur. No, I should thank you, not forgive you. And then Human Fly talks to the man. Turns out this man taught Human Fly everything he knows about tightrope walking. (laughs) And, (laughs) And, yeah, he says, I was wrong, Fly, and I'll go to prison for it probably for the rest of my life. Yes, you will, dude. (laughs) He says then, but maybe I made up a little 
with you and the girl. Your secret is safe with me. Go on, son. Do what this old man could never do. Give people something to live for. Give them hope. It's worth more than glory. <laughs> and I'll say this. You know, there's elements to this story that, that work. I mean, that's a great line right there. But all they had to do was just take out some of this ridiculous stuff with what he was doing. What if he went out on the wire with Human Fly? Instead of trying to kill him, he accidentally snaps the cable and what if i don't know somehow there's a fire that starts it's unrelated but we end up with a man who's broken who has lost his chance to have his his former glory that's forgivable that's a mistake that he did something stupid and then has to make up for it and then we could still have all of the you know the hijinks of getting up the building and stuff like that but no we are given this over-the-top villain and then we're expected to forgive him just a little bit because instead of burning five, four or five disabled school children to death while holding that at gunpoint, he chooses to help one cross a bridge. No, you didn't make up for it a little bit, man. This is, this is clown shoes. This is a clown car that pulls up and you open the trunk and after 48 clowns come out, you see there's three suitcases full of clown shoes. This is ridiculous. I... <laughs> but I'm sitting here laughing. So, is it so bad that it's good? I don't know. I mean, you get that reveal where he tears away <laughs> the thing and he's in the circus. Strongman jungles print tights and it's just why in the world why did he dig that that out after you know 30 years i mean pearl harbor was 30 years ago <laughs> oh okay well now i think i mentioned that i was going to uh have some feedback on this issue um and do it in the bullpen bulletin but i'm, I'm calling it audible and i, I think i'm just going to go ahead and, and read that feedback right now uh, here while I'm in the middle of talking about the human fly. And it comes from uh, Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Network, which is a podcast that features him and his daughter and uh, three different shows that they do. And uh, so uh, he sent in this feedback. Um, he does a Quarterbin podcast, which is where he reads books that he paid only a quarter for. And he has like his big database. And so I, he has apparently lots and lots of comics. So I don't know if this is a quarter comic or not, but he, he read it. And so here is his email. He writes, Ben, when you started covering the human fly as a licensed property, I thought it rang a bell. Digging through the books I've bought from the cheap bins in the last few years, there it was. Human fly number five. So I was waiting for you to cover it on the show so I could send feedback until I realized I could send pre-feedback. So here are some of my thoughts on number five. For context, I have just heard you talk about the first two issues, so I don't know how you felt about issue three and four or even what happened in them. I was pleasantly surprised by number five, especially after listening to you talk about the wackiness of the evil car racing plot from issue two. This story seemed much more contained and, dare I say it, almost realistic. The villain had a reasonable backstory, albeit a slightly soap opera backstory. I like the redemptive arc that Malik went on over the issue, going from dejected and delusion to willingly criminal to heroic. Keeping the fly's secret identity secret was a nice touch. And you might be too young to know this, but daredevils and wirewalking were a thing in the 70s, although references to the World Trade Center are still a bit disconcerting. 
I did want to ask you whether there was a building in Canada that approached that height. Was that supposed to be the CN Tower? That part confused me. Also, the notion of the handicapped kids just needed to try a little harder to work to walk over the metal link bridge was another insight into 1970s thinking. But those are all minor quibbles. The story did not try to be epic or sweeping or world shattering, but it had stakes that were high enough and dramatic enough to hold my interest. Maybe it's just that your coverage of issue two had tempered my expectations enough to allow for this issue to pleasantly surprise me. A few comments about other features in the issue. First, only 17 pages of story out of 32. That did break up the reading more than I expected. Second, the letter page addressed a question regarding the issue of fictionalizing the actions of a real person, and their answer was pretty interesting. And third, Thor versus the Dingling family? Enough said. Keep up the good work, and God bless you, Professor Allen. And Professor Allen, I'll say this. I'm not too young to know this. Um, I watched That's Incredible religiously. All right? I mean, I know that stuff was going on because they were talking about it with John Davidson and that football guy and that, that lady. Um, but anyway, um, I, yeah, this is a better issue. And it, honestly, this is a better issue than number two, but it would really, really, really be hard for me to um, find anything that's not as good or that, that that's not better than number two. So... Yeah, I and I appreciate the feedback and and thank you for listening. Thor versus the Dingling family, I'll be talking about that in the bullpen bulletin. As for the building, like I said, I don't know. It's not the CN Tower. Uh, that's in Toronto, and um, this is in Quebec somewhere, but it doesn't tell us the city. That's the problem; is it doesn't say what city it is. I was uh, going. I was assuming it was Montreal, but I, I just couldn't find anything that was matching what I was seeing in the visuals and what I. I, I don't know if it's a real thing or not. It looks like a real enough building, but I don't know if it's based on a, an actual real building that someone could have you know, strung a wire between. And as for that last tidbit in the, the letters page, it was interesting because they're talking about how they fictionalize things, but they want to keep it you know, semi-realistic and, and honor the, the truth of the story. But I've, I've spent way too much time talking about this. Uh, I, I didn't like it that much, and I want to just read some Godzilla. So, it's time to move on. Godzilla, issue number six. $0.35 cent cover price. Doug Mensch, writer. Herb Trimpey, artist and anchor. B. Patterson, letterer. P. Rach, colorist. Archie Goodwin, editor. The title of this issue, A Monster Enslaved. And previously in the Godzilla series, well, here's what you need to know. Godzilla unfroze and began wreaking havoc on the Marvel Universe, and now S.H.I.E.L.D. is on the move to stop him with Stark's, Stark Industries helping. And <clears throat> we've had some battles, we've had, you know, monsters, we've had lots of stuff going on, and the last couple of issues, we actually had a little bit of social commentary and great big giant monster stomp battles and... This issue, well, this issue, if you look at the cover, you get uh, Godzilla sleeping, his tongue dangling out of his mouth, making it look like he's not just sleeping, he's really out of it, and he's being pulled into some sort of great big giant box, a uh, great big giant floating box that has uh, helicarrier-like propellers, well, uh, Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones are having a conversation of some sort about Godzilla. And, yeah. Well, I have to say that the uh, 
The cover is a pretty perfect uh, representation of the tone of this book. Maybe even a metaphorical representation of the book itself, of this issue. Um, So, yeah, on the cover, you have Godzilla asleep, being pulled into a giant containment cell in a helicarrier. And guess what happens inside? Uh, Godzilla falls asleep and gets pulled into a great big giant containment cell on a helicarrier. I mean, it, 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 it is what it says it is. It is what it says on the tin, as, as uh, they say over across the pond. So the way I'm going to look at this issue is I'm just going to take a look at our cast and all these subplots that are, are basically... I, this is a setup issue. This is setting up the next thing, the next conflict. And it, it's, it's, it exists, I think, to just give us all the subplots. Uh, because, well, let's just go character by character. First, you have Godzilla. And Godzilla, he is just walking through the wilderness, minding his own business, and he stops to take a nap in a really, really, really big cave. Uh, He wakes up, he's groggy, he gets attacked, and he gets sprayed by sleeping gas and falls asleep. When he wakes up again, he wakes up in a cell, and, and this time, you know, this time he he's more alert. It, it it's as almost as if you know, the first time he woke up, he just was hitting the snooze button. And, you know, he's he's been down now for another, you know, for that 10 minutes. And now he's up. Now, obviously, it takes longer than that because they've moved him across the country or to a containment cell off of the helicarrier. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's more alert. He breaks out. He's ready to stop to be continued. Gabe Jones. Uh, his story for this issue is that he is following Godzilla as Godzilla is walking through the wilderness, minding his own business. And Gabe Jones is keeping tabs on Godzilla as, as shield has something prepared for him and he's leading shield to Godzilla, but he feels bad. He feels like we should just leave Godzilla alone. He feels bad when they start attacking Godzilla. He feels bad when they gas Godzilla. He feels bad uh, but also impressed when the replacement helicarrier replacing the one that was destroyed earlier in San Francisco has come. And I think it's called the behemoth. It's huge. It's gigantic. It's so big that they can open up the front and they can actually fit Godzilla in, which is great when he's asleep. So he feels bad as they load him up. He feels bad when they put him in another cell. He feels bad uh, when all this happens. But and when God, Godzilla wakes up and escape, he, he feels bad bad but he's feeling the scared kind of bad because he's running away uh, as you would too no matter how sympathetic you might have felt for Godzilla if he's stomping your way you're, you're not going to stand there and, and try and talk him down so that's Gabe Jones and his, his character arc for the issue uh, not much of an arc going from feeling bad to feeling a little worse to feeling scared Dum Dum Dugan is the opposite now this is some of the stuff where they tell us in the story. They don't necessarily show us the story, uh, the, the character arc that Dum Dum Dugan goes on. But uh, as far as he's concerned, at the beginning of the issue, the sooner Godzilla is taken care of, the better. He is not feeling bad about any of those things, gassing Godzilla, knocking him out, loading him up, dropping him into a new cell until they can take care of him with the big plan that they have. Uh, this isn't the big plan. There is another uh, more elements to the plan. And, but then later on in the issue, he is, uh, when Godzilla escapes, he says, you know, I almost came over to your side, Gabe, but, uh, you know, then, then Godzilla goes and does something like this. And by something like this, he means 
escaping from uh, being trapped in a, a cell. Um, and when Godzilla escapes and tries to stomp on them, well, Dum Dum Dugan, he's just back to his you know or, original thoughts. Like I said, not much of a character arc there. Uh, he only says he only says it out loud. There's nothing else to indicate that he does almost start agreeing with Gabe Jones. So next we have Jimmy Wu, James Wu, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. He's at Stark Labs with the scientists from Japan, and he uh, his story arc is, is pretty simple, too. He has feelings for Tamara. Uh, Tamara is one of the scientists. She's the assistant for Dr. Takaguchi. And he actually kisses her. She's not interested. And so his story arc is... His character arc, rather, is, is pretty simple. Um, he's been spurned, and he feels bad. Made an awkward situation more awkward. Tamara, she is not interested in Jimmy Woo's uh, wooing. That's that's her character arc. I mean, hey, it's the 70s. Come on. Dr. Kakaguchi, uh, he is almost done with the plan that he came up with to stop Godzilla, which is a giant robot. This should be a great issue, right? They talk about the giant robot. They show the schematics of the giant robot. We should be seeing Godzilla fight the giant robot, right? No. Remember, this is a setup issue. This is the issue, well, it's setting things up, right? Finally, there's Kenny. I, I, I mean, Rob. Uh, who has studied his grandfather's schematics and who believes that the giant robot should be used to help Godzilla, not to hurt Godzilla. Because really, the only thing that a giant fire-breathing radioactive monster needs to help him get by in the world is is the help of a 10-year-old boy. Now, because giant radioactive monsters don't usually get protection from a 10-year-old boy. Maybe he needs something a little more than just his you know, little 10-year-old boy body. So he goes, he breaks in past the security guards, breaks into the head of the robot, which is the control center. And uh, since he studied the schematics, he knows how to hook himself in to the mental controls, which he does. And then he falls asleep or falls unconscious or whatever. I mean, basically this whole comic book exists for characters to not get developed and to fall asleep. Godzilla falls asleep twice. Rob falls asleep. Meanwhile, Dum Dum, Gabe, and, uh, you know, nobody does anything. They capture Godzilla and then they put him in a cell so he can escape. I don't understand why this issue had to happen. Uh, really, this comic book exists to show you things that you want to have happen and that will happen in next issue, but that you wanted to happen in this issue. And so now you're just going to have to wait until next issue because that's when they're going to happen. This issue should have been as simple as our plan is ready. They capture him, put him in the behemoth. He starts to escape and the robot is there. Now, if you want to put Rob in the robot, that's fine. I don't care. I don't know where that's going. I can't remember. Uh, I know that Rob is the Kenny, and the, what's a Kenny? Well, a Kenny is a kid from the first Gamera film, and he's, you know, th there's some sort of annoying kid that, ha that shows up in a lot of kaiju movies, Godzilla, Gamera, a lot of them. Some of them don't have the kids, uh, but the ones that do, 
generally speaking, you you don't like the kids when when they show up. The only real joy I got in in reading this was seeing the Behemoth Helicarrier. That was kind of cool. Uh, it's a little awkward. It's very boxy. Um, but then it also seen the schematic for the giant robot project. You don't actually see the robot itself in all of its glory, but you do see the schematic that looks like the the kind of thing that they would use in a handbook to the Marvel Universe later on when they would maybe reuse some or repurpose some art like that. Uh, that's kind of cool, but I didn't want to see schematics of something like that. I want to see something like that actually happen. I want to see that actually walking out, getting ready to fight Godzilla. Even if they had just said, okay, here's a few steps toward Godzilla. But no, they use this to give us the awkward kiss scene. They use you know, the whole putting Godzilla to sleep with gas. I mean, if that works then all they have to do is keep on doing that. Be ready to keep on doing that. This doesn't make any sense. It's not very logical. It's not very exciting. It's not exciting at all. We're going to see the giant robot, which will be named next issue. So I'm not going to name it right now, but we're going to see that giant robot battle the big G next issue. I don't know if Kenny's going to be driving it or if he's going to like wake up in the middle of it being controlled remotely and now he's in control. I don't know. Uh, but as far as this issue goes, ugh, real disappointment. A real disappointment. Now, one of the highlights, though, of doing this podcast about these comics is John Carter. And John Carter is what's coming up next. I'm just hoping it's going to be good enough to lift me up from the depths. Uh, and I am intentionally quoting the, the Godzilla theme song from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which isn't nearly as bad as people make it out to be. But that is a discussion for another time and another place. So as we stand here at the comic spinner rack or the magazine rack, you know, the bottom shelves where they have the comics there for the, the kids to have easy access... And we're looking at the Marvel comics that aren't superhero and that, uh, well, I guess Human Fly technically is, but that aren't like the, the Marvel stable of characters. As we're looking at these licensed comics, sci-fi books, generally speaking, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, it's there. It's sitting there. It's waiting for us to pick it off the rack spend the 35 cents in 1970s funds to to purchase and and it's it's reaching out to us with a cover that that gives us some promises and and here's what it promises it, it promises that uh we're going to see John Carter uh probably we're expecting that it promises a giant snake like being that's shooting stuff out of its eyes promises sword play that's just from the, the image on the cover it also promises that this is the greatest martian epic of them all which you know that's that's the kind of thing that you could debate that it's debatable but uh it's debatable because it could be true could be false there's probably a better one out there but this is pretty good it promises that the marvel explosion begins here and it says, as helium crumbles, John Carter must battle the beast with the touch of stone. Well, we'll get to that. 
Issue 8 is entitled Flesh May Wither and Stone May Crumble. Air Pirates of Mars, Chapter 8. Written by Marv Wolfman, edited by Marv Wolfman. Illustrated by Gil Kane and Rudy Nebris. Uh, lettered by Irving Watanabe. And colored by Michelle Wolfman. And we are <laughs> given an interesting splash page to open it up of John Carter and Deja Thoris uh, skiing down sand slopes. Okay, so our story opens with John Carter and, and Deja Thoris on a double date with uh, Cantus Khan and Licia sand skiing, and they're kind of having a picnic, a campfire. Tars Tarkas is there. He's a fifth wheel, though. And he can't understand why John Carter has decided to play games. And uh, he can't understand Cantus Khan's distraction by Cantus uh, Khan's female companion, Licia. Licia, the female companion, is also distracted, though she's been given a premonition of death. There will be death in the future soon, and she wants Cantus Khan to stop being a warrior before her premonition comes true. John Carter joins the conversation, and he's a man of practicality. And, you know, he's a man who came to Mars from Earth via some sort of psychic bridge thing that keeps his body on Earth alive, even though it's not eating, it's just sleeping for years. Uh, and while his body is alive on Earth, he has another body that's the same, but different on Mars. And it's super powered, and he can't remember being anything but an adult man for longer than he is, his age would suggest. Uh, and he just got done fighting a mind-controlling dragon from beyond space that he killed a few weeks back. But of course, as he is listening to the conversation with Cantus Khan and Licia, he doesn't believe in sorcery or magic. What kind of right-thinking person would... That's just crazy. And then he tells a story about a witch doctor in Africa who used chemicals to kill a man and make it look like magic as the man was burned alive when he threw a voodoo doll into the fire, which there's chemicals on the voodoo doll that caused the fire to spread quickly and burn the man alive. And of course, one example is enough to disprove her premonition, right? So no one takes it seriously. Of course not. Even though her premonition consisted of a, a necklace that she dangled over the sand that moved by itself and drew a very detailed sketch of a skull's face. Um, you know, some people, uh, to quote David Crosby, wouldn't know a burning bush till it blew up in their face. And that will probably be the first and only and final time I quote David Crosby in this podcast or ever. Cut to he who sits upon the throne, who also could also be called he who throws a great big bad guy tantrum speech as he is really just screaming at a lackey to let that lackey know how much he has displeased him because the lackey allowed Star of Khan to be killed by John Carter. 
So he who sits upon the throne reaches out with a giant hand, takes the lackey's head into his hand, and squeezes and crushes the lackey's head like it's some sort of orange or lemon or some sort of other soft handheld fruit. Maybe a a bell pepper also. Little same same idea, same firmness, you know same amount of power, just not as as juicy, I guess. So no, uh, not a not a bell pepper. Uh, definitely a citrus fruit. He's reached out, grabbed this uh, poor 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 Thark's head, and squeezed it like some sort of citrus fruit. Now let me explain what this guy looks like. Uh, you don't see him well on the the first page he appears on, but then when you get to the next page, you see him. He's huge. I mean, we, you already get the impression of how big he is because of how big his hand is. He's huge. He has four arms. His legs are green. One set of arms is kind of blue or white. Uh, one set of arms are gold. His head is red. Uh, basically, I mean, he he runs the Council of Five, uh, but he seems to be a mix of all the Martian races, in, including the, the giant gorilla guys who are mindless and the Tharks and the red-skinned uh, red Barsoomians and the, the gold-skinned ones. Um, it, it looks kind of goofy. It, it looks patchwork. It looks like it's been pieced together. It looks like it, it almost looks like you you could have taken you know four different action figures and just kind of taken their pieces and mixed and matched them to create this guy. And so here's here's the thing. I mean, we don't see him do much of anything. We know he's the big bad now. We know he's the leader behind all these troubles that that have been occurring. I just don't know. He'll have to be used very, very well. He'll have to be. He'll have to do some pretty awesome stuff here, as we move forward, for me to accept the the visual of this guy. The the visual just doesn't work for me. But I think if his evil plan or if the way he goes about whatever he's going to do to stop you know the good guys and to destroy civilization or whatever. If he does it in a way that I find creative and interesting and fun, I think I'll be okay with with his look. If not, I'm just gonna constantly be reminded, you know, as his plan goes forward. It's kind of he looks stupid too. I, I I'm not gonna say that I think he looks stupid yet. I just have to see how well he's used to see how he's going to grow on me. But for the time being, there's some intriguing mystery here about who this guy is. How how is this guy even a thing? How does he exist? Uh, you know, that's not what it looks like when you have like genetics being passed on from from generation to generation. This is piecemeal, uh, and so I, I I am curious about where he comes from, and, and I think that's what the backstory is also going to be something that causes me to decide whether I'm going to accept this guy or not. So anyway, back in the city, um, the double date is over. John Carter and Deja Thoris have a quiet, intimate moment in their quarters, uh, while Contus Khan and and Lysia have a lovers a lovers quarrel. And while outside, dark hooded men are sneaking through the streets, uh, up to some sort of nefarious deeds. They attack. Contus Khan joins in them in battle. Lysia reminds him of the warning. We must remember that warning that is not just uh, 
a little quirk of character. This is a thematic thing, I think. John Carter joins the fray, and they win against these men in the Dark Hoods, who are also the men who cause the city to turn against John Carter. They win, but Licia knows that death is coming, and indeed, rock snakes then attack. These are snakes that are kind of rising up out of the ground and you get the impression that these are not like burrowing through the ground but they are made out of ground the earth is rising in snake form they grow out of the earth and they zap with their eyes and whatever they zap turns to stone now i know the cover said you know something about you know the touch of whatever Uh, there's no touch involved it's just zapping with eyes just lots of zapping it's a cool fight, I have to say. You know, if it started off a little bit odd, off-putting, with the whole, um, uh, you know, we're on a double date and skiing, and, and you know, John Carter chastises himself uh, as this is happening, saying, why was I taking time to play when I knew that there were, you know, evil guys who were doing evil things? But um, the fight, when we finally get to it, it's a fun fight it's a dynamic fight uh the snakes are moving around they're zapping their eyes they're the humans are dodging out of the way they're trying to fight the stone with their steel it's it's muscle and steel and guns versus living stone and whatever you know if if they zap someone who's alive they are they're turned to stone uh the the resolution not as cool as the fight uh, early on uh the guy who was we, who I thought was going to be a protagonist until he died star Khan uh he had buried a robot arm in the city. This is what the robot arm was buried there to do. It actually is what created the stone monsters and is kind of controlling them too uh and John Carter realizes this, so he goes after it and he destroys that arm and destroying that arm destroys them and they they crumble into dust and it's a, it's a pretty cool visual i mean the artwork in this issue uh you know say what you want about again double date out in the the sand dunes but uh the, the artwork is is fantastic the whole way through especially this this final battle and and the the crumbling of the snakes and it's really cool and cantus khan has survived the tragic prophecy was avoided or was it you see death did come Lysia herself was turned to stone uh, okay this is a nice heartfelt story has an emotional twist has a cool battle has a villain who I am curious about I might even say intrigued but definitely curious uh, the the issue itself great uh, the arm, this is what the arm does. Well, that's a, that's a disappointment because back when it was buried there and it was part of this grand plan, it seemed like it should have been something more momentous. It seemed like it should have been something that, that was causing more trouble than just, you know, three stone snakes that, uh, John Carter is able to take out alone. I would have liked to have seen something they actually had to really struggle with and, you know, maybe an explosion that takes down some of the city or or something. I, I, I don't know. But this this felt like a little bit of anticlimax 
considering you know how much attention was given to this earlier on. But uh, the other thing that I really appreciated about this, besides the art and and the the, the cool uh, fight there, is is the theme uh, of Lysia and and Cantus Khan. And you know, I kind of poked fun at it a little bit of how what I call the Godzilla syndrome. Uh, the Godzilla syndrome comes from the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla cartoon, where every episode they face a new monster. And every time they say, I can't believe it. That's just not possible. And first of all, you know, every week you see a new monster. At some point you should probably accept that it is possible. And second of all, even the first time you see a monster you would probably be be more accepting of things considering they actually have like a remote control button that they can press that calls Godzilla to protect them uh seeing a giant crab or some sort of strange caterpillar beast on the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge it's not impossible it's not crazy it's not weird it's normal it's normal life. And for John Carter to say, ah, sorcery and magic, I don't believe in it. Uh, it just doesn't really ring <laughs> true. Uh, but that gets us to the theme, though, where they there's two ways you could take this. And one is that they don't accept the supernatural, and it turns out the supernatural exists. And they have to deal with that and the consequences of not taking seriously that the supernatural was trying to give them some form of warning. And if they had just heeded the warning that, well, Lysia would still be alive. The other way you can take it is that whole idea of uh, the Cassandra syndrome where they're just not taking her seriously and they should. So on one hand, they should be taking the supernatural seriously, but you know, I don't believe in sorcery or magic. Uh, on the other hand, they should be taking her seriously. Um, it's true. I mean, she, unless she's really good at swinging that necklace to create pictures in the sand, there's something that was happening there. And they're just, they just wave it off like, ah, whatever. Because you know what? One time something was told to me that it said that it was supernatural. And guess what? It was a guy who was tricking people. Not supernatural at all. Therefore, since once it was not true, that means it's always not true, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, that's not the exact logic that's being given, but they are definitely not giving her the attention that they should be, and they're not paying serious attention to what she's saying, and this causes her to be well, turned to stone. And it's... I, I, it rings true. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could apply this to of people just not taking seriously a warning because they don't believe or because they don't want to deal with it. And I mean, this is, this is personal health. This is political situations. This is, um, religious ideas. I mean, these are all things that people just discard out of hand without you know stopping to say well you know what there is this that makes me kind of doubt but on the other hand there are some other elements and so it was it was good in that regard now i'm going to take a moment to talk about um the marvel fan magazine called foom 
Friends of Old Marvel. Uh, Foom number 20 came out this month, and I don't have a date for the actual release, but this was something that came out through subscription. It was a fan, uh, a fan magazine about Marvel, but it's a fan magazine about Marvel that was actually published by Marvel. Uh, Jim Stranko was involved in it in, in its inception. Um, Stan Lee, though, also had a, uh, he had a, a forward in the first issue. A subscription to this magazine cost $3 and also got you the club membership ID card and some stickers and a poster. And it really was Marvel trying to foster fandom. Uh, and, you know, it's basically like uh, having, you know, a blog and a website for a publisher. Um, and like when, uh, you know, Joe Q used to do Cup of Joe. And, and things like that for the Marvel website or for other um, fan websites. But this was um, uh, official Marvel material. Now, the interview that they had in this issue, first of all, on the cover, John Carter is actually featured on the cover. And it was uh, by by George Perez, actually. And it's good. It's it's a, It's got that swashbuckling feel as John Carter and Deja Thoris are being menaced by a giant arc and i guess are there any other kinds really but the interview inside has some stories about how marv wolfman got the job and it's things that he actually talked about in my interview with him in a previous episode of comic book time machine but there was some interesting stuff that was was kind of new and that was that i didn't realize that he had written i, I knew that he had written for the edgar rice burroughs uh estate that they were trying to do their own comic he actually took his script and turned that around and made that be the uh, tryout script for, for the artist that would work on, on the book. It's an interesting interview. Um, he's, you know, he talks about the limitations of working with a character that, uh, that was established and that he couldn't <laughs> kill off. And there's a lot of artwork that was, was featured in, in this issue. And they actually even had the, a page of the manuscript from um that that he had written there was an outline of things it's it's interesting it's good and the artwork is fantastic to look at in black and white and some of the layouts and it's really uh, really neat uh the uh, the whole idea of foom is a neat idea and something that uh i wish i would have done back then uh obviously not in 1977 because i would have been three or yeah, three. Uh, but if I had had a chance to do that in the '80s, I think I would have really enjoyed something like that, and get to you know see things from the artists and and the writers and stuff like that. So, um, I, I have to say, well, I'll go ahead and, and and get into the bullpen bulletin, and then then I'll give my my final verdict on whether or not this was a worthwhile trip to go back in time to this month to pick up these comics. <laughs> So the bullpen bulletin here, uh, this is when I go through and look at the ads in the book, and <laughs> there's some doozies. Now, there are some uh, flea market pages uh, where you just have lots and lots of different things, different novelties, life-size ghost, um, which is what Tim Barron, this, this ad here for the life-size ghost you control. It's a seven-foot life-size ghost that you can control. And my friend Tim Barron, who did the book... Uh, 
uh, Mamator and the Conquerors of the Cosmos with me, and Frankenstein and the Conquerors of the Cosmos. He has uh, that's what he calls his his publishing his self publishing arm is uh, Life Size Monster Ghost. So he got that from there. Uh, then there's Super Sea Monkeys who. They this is interesting because they show like the cartoon sea monkeys, but then they show the actual like what the the things look like right there. There's a there's a picture that uh, just that kind of I don't know what they are. Um, I've listened to a podcast actually to explain them, but uh, it's kind of cool. There's the um, Simon and Schuster presents the complete marvelous collection. It's all the books that they created. Um, or uh, origins, uh, son of origins. Um, Bring on the bad guys, superhero women of uh, all the graphic novels that were coming out before they were called graphic novels, really. And turn through here. We're not at the weird one yet. There's another flea market page. You can sell grit. There's a werewolf that um, <laughs> advertising Slim Jim, where it says "Satisfy your meat tooth." Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, there's posters of Farrah Fawcett, John Travolta, Jamie Summers, and Steve Austin, which, uh, as some of you know, I'm, I'm a $6 million man fan, casual fan, but fan enough to buy the DVDs and watch them with my kids and make my kids relive the 70s with me. Uh, there's the letters page. The only one I have here is from The Human Fly, and uh, yeah, they allow some criticism there. I'm, I'm just not... <laughs> I'm not impressed by people on the letters page there because it tends to be it tends to be the positive stuff. But um, can sell candy bars, uh, more more field uh, field flea market pages. Turn any wall into a giant screen TV. No electronic experience needed. Uh, extraordinary new invention: a scientific marvel that turns any TV into a powerful project projector. Very, very curious what that ends up being there. There's a giant magic ghost, not to be confused with a life-size ghost. Uh, oh, this is what I talked about with Professor Allen's... Um, <laughs> Professor Allen, you mentioned the Dingling family, but I can't believe you men didn't mention what I'm about to in a few moments here. But Thor in the Dingling family. This is Thor battling the Dingling family uh, and then using hostess fruit pies to get them to stop because they're such Dinglings. Uh, oh, this is bad. This is bad. Basically, these are uh, hillbilly space pirates who attack Thor in his spacefaring Viking ship as they jump out of their spacefaring trailer. Oh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. Uh... For some reason, they, his hammer doesn't work on them because um, I don't even I don't even know I don't even know I don't even know I I don't want to know. <laughs> Hostess fruit pie ads are usually dumb for all the right reasons and fun for all the wrong reasons, and this is not fun. It's just dumb. Then there's. <laughs> the back page which has really creepy looking doll now Nirisk or Nirisk Industries has created this doll it's pa uh, talking patty prayer doll 
uh, kneels and says her bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know that one. It says, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. Guide me safely through the night. Walk, wake with, make, wake me in the morning light. God bless mommy and daddy and make me a good girl. Amen. This thing looks creepy, though. I mean, she's got her eyes closed, her hands folded, and you can comb her hair and then have prayer, I guess. $10. 20 inches tall, soft, cuddly, and lifelike. Maybe too lifelike. Uncanny Valley type of thing we're talking here. This... (laughs) Open the zipper on her back to turn the record over, and she sings, Brother John... Yeah, I I don't even know what to say there. Uh, this is the ad that 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 took the cake for me in this month, and I just can't help thinking: Do they really think that the comic book buying and reading audience in 1978 are the same people who are going to see an ad for a talking Patty prayer doll and think, you know what, I want one of those? I mean, there are going to be some girls who are reading comics, but girls who are young enough to see that and want it, I, I, they're either not reading comics, or if they are, they're not going to be interested in this thing. You know, they're going to be, I don't even know what to think about this. It is really weird. And it's kneeling. It's got a nightgown on. Uh, it just seems really out of place, and the sculpting of the face just seems really creepy. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and turn around here and get out next month. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to go ahead. Uh, this is a little thicker here. Uh, let's see. Well, we do have a, a... Oh. Okay, I can see why I put that in there. And, well, I've got some actually pretty heavy reading ahead of me. Uh, I've got Star Wars number 8 coming up, John Carter Warlord of Mars number 9, Godzilla number 7, and I have uh, Marvel Classic Comics, and the reason I included this one and I haven't included other ones before is that this one is uh, First Men in the Moon. So a nice retro sci-fi tale, and then there's also a number one issue. TV tie-in and I'm very excited about this. I still have to decide if I'm going to actually watch what this is a tie-in to. Because it's a little expensive to get the DVD. But uh, it's a $1 comic. One hefty dollar. The other comics are 70, or 35 cents each. First Men in the Moon. 52 pages for 60 cents. But this giant size bonus issue. All new from the sensational NBC television super series. Issue number one. Man from Atlantis. And I am very excited to get into this. I do not know much about that at all. I am I have held off looking at this. I didn't even realize this was the next one coming up, so this is kind of fun. This is the fun of this, is I've packed these in such a way that when I pull out the next one, a lot of this is going to be a surprise, especially when there's something new. And so, yeah, no wonder this was so hefty when I pulled it out. We've got the 52-page... No ads, First Men in the Moon, and then this $1 issue. There are ads. There are definitely ads, and there are articles and pinups, and 
The cover says, two novel-length Mark Harris adventures. I guess Mark Harris is the man from Atlantis. Plus behind-the-scenes articles, photos, and pinups. And I can't wait to talk about this. I do want to thank you for listening again. Um, also, remind you, you can go to comicbooktimemachine.com where you can find out how to contact us. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash comicbooktimemachine. And uh, on Twitter, we're Comic Time. And until next time, like I said, thanks for listening. And Godspeed.